Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 95. This psalm is quoted extensively in the Epistle to the Hebrews, where it is identified in Hebrews 4.7 as the Psalm of David. It appears to have been composed specifically for corporate worship, along with most of the other psalms in this section. The psalm itself appears to have three distinct sections. The first section runs from verse 1 through verse 5, and it begins with a call to worship in verses 1 to 2. Many scholars actually suggest that this psalm was intended to be sung antiphonally, meaning that it was written to be sung in parts. So perhaps the worship leader sang these first two verses, and then the whole congregation responded with the short hymn of praise that follows. This first section has as its theme the power and majesty of God the Creator King. The second section is shorter but similarly arranged. Once again, there's a call to worship, likely sung by the worship leader. You can see that in verse 6. And then there's another short hymn of praise, likely sung by the congregation. And the theme of this second stanza is the nearness and kindness of God, our covenant Lord. So the song focuses first on God's transcendence and then secondly on his imminence. Those are the theological terms. At street level, we would just say that the song focuses first on how big God is and then secondly on how near God is. And of course, you don't really know the God of the Bible until you know both of those things. The third and final section of the psalm contains a sober warning to anyone who would fail to put their trust in this marvelous God. And we hear that warning in God's voice in verses 7d through 11. So the message of this psalm is fairly straightforward. God has revealed his essential character and nature. He is the high king of creation, and he is the near lord of the covenant, and therefore people should trust him. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This is, as I mentioned, the call to worship for the first section of the psalm. The worship leader here is inviting people to come and worship Yahweh, the rock of their salvation. I love what J. Alec Montier says about this phrase. He says, rock carries with it the obvious symbolic significance of stability, permanence, etc., but also, always in the Bible, the life-giving smitten rock of Exodus 17, verse 6, closed quote. And of course, that's absolutely right. In the Bible, the story of the testing at Meribah functions as a sort of template story or design pattern. And it is picked up in passage after passage after passage in the Bible. It is the archetypal story of testing and trial. And the point of the story was that God had buried the supply of life-giving water just at the limit of their endurance as a people. It was a test. 
In the original story, the people came to the oasis at Rephidim at the end of a long and exhausting journey, expecting to find rest and refreshment from the normally reliable springs of water there. However, for one reason or another, there was no water at the oasis, and the people had to keep walking through the wilderness for another whole day before arriving at the foothills of Mount Sinai, whereupon a rock was identified which Moses was to strike with his staff. And when he did, out came a river of life-giving water in the wilderness. Bible commentators sometimes refer to this as anticipatory providence, meaning that God had put the water there. He had arranged for a river to carve through the rock such that it was just inches below the surface, waiting to be released by the tap of Moses' walking stick. And that's the point of the story. God knows the limits of our endurance, and God hides the supply before we even become aware of the need. He is the God of creation. He's the God of rivers and rocks. And therefore, you can trust him. And that's what the people are being invited to do in this first stanza of worship. And so they do. We see that now in verses 3 to 5. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So yes, God is a great God, and he's in control of all things. He made all things, and he disposes all things for the good of his people and for the cause of his glory forever. Amen. The second stanza is shorter, but follows the same basic structure. Verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So that's the call to worship, sung by the leader. Verse 7 provides the anticipated response. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Here the focus is on God's personal and covenantal love and care for his people. He is not just the creator God. He's also the covenant God. He is big and he is near. He is powerful and he is personal. Thanks be to God. And now we have the warning. We hear that beginning at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, as mentioned, this psalm was originally created for use in corporate worship. And in that sense, it functions brilliantly as a warning to people who are about to hear from the Lord. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says here, to hear his most holy word is presented here as one of the prime acts of worship. And hear, or hearken to, has often the added dimension in Hebrew of obey, for which the Old Testament has virtually no other word. So the worshiper singing this psalm is reminded to ask himself how he hears. Will it be obediently? And for whose voice he listens, close quote. And so there is a sense in which it would be most appropriate to use this psalm 
as a sort of prayer of illumination. One could easily pray or read this psalm just prior to the message in a worship service. This psalm is calling upon people to respond better and more wisely than did the first generation of Israelites in the desert. They saw God's ways. They they learned of his power and mercy, but they did not learn to trust him. They never did take him at his word. And as a result, they did not enter his rest. Obviously, that applies in the immediate context to the land of Canaan. But the fact that it is picked up and applied to the New Testament believer in Hebrews 3 and 4 suggests that, again, this is part of its function as a design pattern. It points to the larger realities of life, faith, and eternity. Derek Kidner makes that point plainly. He says that its use in Hebrews 3 and 4 forbids us to confine its thrust to Israel. The today of which it speaks is this very moment. The you is none other than ourselves. And the promised rest is not Canaan, but salvation, closed quote. So when this pattern is applied to us, its ultimate meaning is clear. We, above all people, know who God is. He is the God of creation, and he is the God of the covenant. He is powerful and personal. Therefore, you should trust him. There is no excuse not to trust him, for God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what more do you need to know? You know enough. And so if you stubbornly refuse to trust him, then you shall never enter his rest. That is the challenge that the apostle makes of this psalm in Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. He says, take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. The RMM reading plan has us reading two psalms today, so open your Bibles now if you have one to Psalm 96. Ernst Wilhelm Hengstenberg, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but he says here, this is a missionary hymn for all ages of the church, and it becomes more and more appropriate to our times in proportion as the heathen begin to respond to the call. Now, he wrote that in 1864, so we would want to update the language a little bit, but we would want to retain wholesale his basic conclusion. This is a missionary hymn. We believe that it was composed by David on the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the city of Jerusalem, as described in 1 Chronicles 16. Most of this psalm is actually repeated in that chapter, along with verses and phrases from other psalms. Apparently, David composed a number of psalms to be sung on that most momentous of days. It was a day of victory, a day when the presence of the Lord was manifested in territory previously held by the enemy. And David sees in that another design pattern. He sees the judgment of God, the rule of God, beginning to displace the chaos and darkness of the enemy. And so he says, We need to respond to that, and we need to publish that. We need to make the nations aware that light 
is breaking back into the world. And so we hear that movement between worship and mission. John Piper famously said that mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission isn't primary in the church. Worship is primary. And the function of mission is to gather the nations into the praise and enjoyment of the Lord. And that's why the book that contains that quote from John Piper is called Let the Nations Be Glad. And that title comes from Psalm 67, verse 4, but that sentiment is repeated almost verbatim in this psalm. So God is on the move, and we ought to let every man, woman, and child on planet Earth know about it so that they can join with all creation in receiving him with gladness and joy. That's the idea here. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. I find the structure suggested by Willem van Gemmeren in his commentary to make a lot of sense. He sees these first three verses as the proclamation of universal praise, which is then followed by a hymn of praise to the majesty of God in verses four to six. So imagine a town crier, if you will, walking at the head of a parade, ringing his bell and commanding the watchers on to sing to the Lord a new song, this song, declare his praise among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. And then everyone would respond with the hymn provided in the following verses. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, modern readers always choke a little bit when we see this reference to small g gods in the Old Testament. As always, we need to pay attention to the context. Sometimes the Hebrew word Elohim should be understood as referring to the heavenly court. It is God speaking to or of angels, both good and bad. And sometimes, as may be the case in Psalm 82, the word gods refers to human leaders. But here, given the context, it is clear that we are talking about false gods, gods that are not gods in any reasonable sense of the word. J. Alec Machir notes that there is a punning effect in Hebrew. The Elohim are Elilim, nothings, pale imitations of the real thing, closed quote. So here we're being told that it is time for the nations to be told that their so-called gods are really just demonic deceptions. It is time now for all people to be brought to the knowledge of the one true God. According to Van Gemmeren, verses 7 to 9 now provide another proclamation of universal praise followed by another short hymn of praise. So if he is correct, then we should hear verses 7 to 9 in the voice of the town crier, as it were, and then verses 10 to 13 as the suggested hymn of response by the people. Let's hear then the proclamation of universal praise. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. 
Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The threefold ascribe here mirrors the threefold command to sing in verses 1 to 2. So in the first proclamation, the town crier or the worship marshal is telling everyone to sing. And now here he's telling everyone to ascribe. And then in verse 10, he begins to suggest what we should be saying when we are ascribing and where we should be saying when we are ascribing. He says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the original setting for this psalm was the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. That for David was a sign that God was reversing the curse and beginning to establish his glorious, renewing, recreating reign upon the earth. So David was seeing and celebrating the beginning of something. But most Christian commentators here stretch this psalm far beyond the original sense given by David. So, for example, Martin Luther says here, This is a prophecy concerning the kingdom of Christ and the spreading of the gospel over the whole world and before every creature, which gospel will be a word of joy and thanksgiving, of peace, of rejoicing, and of a continued sacrifice of praise, closed quote. And I tend to agree. Christ is the end of what David saw beginning. Derek Kidner says here, At the creation, the morning stars sang together. At his coming... The earth will at last join in again. Meanwhile, the Psalter itself shows what effect his presence has on those who, even through a glass darkly, already see his face. Close quote. That is well and helpfully said. Christ has come, and death, the devil, and hell have been defeated. We should sing about that. We should celebrate that, and we should let our neighbors know about that. W.S. Plumer says here, If a redeemed sinner should keep silence on redemption, he would be a monster. Closed quote. So sing it, ascribe it, publish it, and proclaim it, because the Lord reigns, the Lord rules, and the Lord comes. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at IntoTheWord.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's IntoTheWord.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.